to Revelation chapter 2. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this night and we ask in Jesus' name, by your great grace, you would give us ears to hear all that your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know what? You guys are all spread out so horribly. Okay. You know, what we need to do is get everybody to get up in the back and come up to the front. Okay, right there. Stand, stop. Raise your hands. Right there. If you are behind that mark, come forward. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect timing. And there you, you got the rebellious ones that say, oh, I'm still going to stay one more seat back than what Brian said. That, that's okay. Go ahead. You know, it's, it's between you and the Lord. Oh, isn't this much better? Okay. We had a harvest festival, but you know, there's the kids. I was talking to some of the pastors today. They're going, oh, my kids still want to go out and dress up again and trick or treat or whatever. It's like, whatever, whatever. And uh, it's only every seven years it falls on Wednesday night, so we'll, we'll deal with it, whatever comes our way. Well, Revelation chapter two. And uh, to the angel of the church in Halloween land. Um, pretty, pretty close. Pergamus, right. And we'll just read this whole section on Pergamus. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2, verse 13 now. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. And so we see Pergamus. We've got some pictures up here for you. Pergamus is about 50 miles north um, of Smyrna. And then about 20 miles inland and um, 16 miles from the Aegean Sea. They did have there the second largest library next to the one in Alexandrian Egypt. In Alexandrian Egypt, uh, they had hundreds of thousands of volumes here. In Pergamos, they had 200,000 volumes, the second largest library. They had the steepest theater 
um, in all of Turkey. About 80 rows, 10,000 people, plays, musicals. And by the way, uh, they did have wild beasts to kill Christians there in that very theater that the runs are there today. Um, there in the temple of Serapum is Serapis, who is the god of the underworld, where we get our picture of Satan. So, you know, you have Satan, the picture of the, you know, the cartoon picture we would have today with the pointy ears and the tail and the pitchfork and so forth. There they had the temple of Serapis, of the underworld, where we get that idea. And they, they also had a number of other beliefs, again, about snakes and and the snakes coming in and laying next to you and the healing power of it and so forth. There, there's a lot of demonic things going on in, in Pergamos. And so to say where Satan dwelt, um, that would be the feeling. If you went there today, uh, or excuse me, if you went there at the time this letter was written, that's exactly, as a Christian, you would have felt that this is a place where Satan is, is really glorified. And real, real quickly here on Halloween night. Some of you may not know what that is about. The early Christians would have in their possession, you know, after the Gutenberg press in 445 AD, you know, 400, about 500 years ago, Christians would have their Bible they would carry with them. They would have a hymnal they would carry with them because, you know, they didn't have um, Game Boys and stuff. So, you know, after you read your Bible, I don't want to say you got bored reading your Bible, but, you know, you wanted a difference. And so they would sing the Bible. And, of course, a lot of the verses were rechanged poetically. And then the third book you had with you was the Fox's Book of Martyrs, going all the way back to the martyr of Stephen and so forth all the way forward. And, and so if you were in a place of persecution, you'd remember that people went through radical persecutions and didn't deny the name of the Lord. Last week, we looked at some of those as we looked at Smyrna, the persecuted church. And, um, and of course, if you weren't in a place of persecution, you didn't want to live in a bubble and, and say the whole world's as us, you know, with freedom of religion that there are people right this moment who are being put to death in parts of the world, in prison, suffering greatly right this minute because they won't deny Jesus. Isn't that radical? And you can go home and look up on the internet the voices of the martyrs, and they keep track how many millions of people are under persecution today for simply unwilling to bow their knee to Allah or unwilling to deny that Jesus is Lord. And we can often just say, well, it doesn't touch my life. It doesn't matter. Um, And we don't want to be foolish like that. Hebrews, Paul tells us to remember those who are in chains for Christ. And so they would have their, their book of martyrs. Now, on November 1st, Christians around the world would go to the graveyards or go to the catacombs of the martyrs And they would have Bible studies and sing and bring food and have picnics and make it an all-day event, remembering those that whether it was their time or even their grandparents' time who 
died for their faith that wouldn't necessarily be in the book of martyrs, but they would remember how they stood for Christ. And, and maybe it would be a story that, you know, my dad told his dad and his dad told his dad. And, and here we are, you know, with a name, Joe Smith, and, and recount the story. Well, in many societies, the civil government and the religious government were one and the same. So the Catholic Church was the religious government, but it was also the civil government. Or it could be the Lutheran, or it could be the Church of England, or whatever it was. And so when they came to parts of the scriptures about witches put him to death, that's what they did. Kick him out of the country, or put him to death, or whatever. Now, that's not the heart of of the New Testament. The Bible says we're to love our enemies, pray for them, do good to them. Uh, It tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, we're not to try to overcome evil with the, the, the earth and flesh that we have, but we're to do it through prayer, pulling down the principalities. But this was a confusing thing. And again, this is why our forefathers of the United States said, look, we don't want to have a religion overseeing the civil government because it confuses things. Let's have people that are godly oversee our government. And they very much wanted that because if a guy's a a godly man and he's running his home in a godly way and he's a godly husband and a godly father and an honest businessman, then what's that going to be like when he's a senator? Okay, if you have a guy that doesn't have Christian mores, and he isn't faithful, and he isn't honest, and what kind of senator he's going to be. So our forefathers very much said, you know, vote for people that are Christians, you know. Vote for people that are honest, um, Bible-reading, Bible-following. But at the same time, they didn't want a religion overseeing the civil government because it can confuse things. And so those who were witches, those who were a part of the Satan church, said... Well, we want to remember those who have died who are a part of Satan. We want to remember the witches that were burned. And, and, and so in essence, they said the night before the holy day of November 1st, we're going to have our time around the graveyard. And recognize us. Don't ignore us. Recognize us. And we're going to come to your house... <laughs> And if you don't recognize us, we're going to do something that you wish we didn't do to your house. So trick or treat. It's up to you. We'll break your windows or smash something or break something or, you know, you're going you're gonna to wish you recognized us. And uh, so from that, you, 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 from that Satan holiday, you've got this thing. But, you know, in Titus 1, it says to the pure, all things are pure. And... Um, Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Satan is always trying to take fun things of God's creation and try to claim it to his own. You ever notice that? You know, I'm going to take this cow, I'm going to sacrifice it to Zeus, and now this is my cow. And what does Paul say? Hey, it's a cow, God made. You can say you sacrificed it to Zeus or Barney. I don't care. It's God's cow. He made it. And man, you're barbecuing, doing a good job there. I'm ready to eat some of it. Now, a guy who was a part of the Zeus worship says, man, that really stumbles me, Paul. Paul says, well, I won't eat it then. But when you're not around, I'll eat it. (laughs) 
because it's God's cow. He made it. The earth is the Lord and all that's in it. All the cattle on a thousand hills and thousand hills, God owns it all. In the same way, God made fun. God made dressing up. Satan can't claim dressing up. And for most people, dressing up as, you know, a superhero or even a witch, it's pure to them. It's, it's not some evil, demonic thing worshiping Satan. It's fun and ghosts and getting scared and epinephrine flowing through your body. You know, it's, it's just a fun thing. And to some little kid, it's just a good memory he has as a kid growing up, dressing up and trying to scare his brother and sisters and, and pretending there's ghosts and goblins and witches and whatever. And I just say to the pure, all things are pure. Now, I grew up in a rather dead denomination. But one time a year, this denomination quit competing with each other and actually got together with each other And they would throw an incredible Halloween party for all the high schoolers. And there would be about a thousand high school kids show up from all the different high schools. And they would have the most glorious costume, the most like Frankenstein, the most like Dracula or whatever. And they gave out prizes and, you know, did the apple dumpkin and all the traditional things. But then at the end of that time, they would have a movie or a concert, eventually an opportunity to receive the Lord. And I saw on that October 31st, people that were hardened sinners come to Christ radically. And I loved it. You know, here we are on Satan's night and we're taking people out of his claws and bringing them into the son of his love. See, that's Christianity. We're not a bunch of Jehovah Witnesses with our shades drawn, hiding in the corner. They're knocking at the door. What do we do? Ah, No, don't let them think we're here. You know, we're not. The righteous are as bold as lions. The wicked, they hear a lion, they run, they hide. The righteous goes out in the middle of the street saying, where's the lion? Let's take it on. We're not playing a defensive game here, are we, guys? The Bible tells us to play an offensive game. As Christians, we have the truth. We're not running anywhere. Air runs from truth. Truth doesn't run from air. And and we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so again, you know, it's one of those things where one person could eat anything, another person can only eat vegetables (laughs) because it stumbles them, you know. And Paul says, be sensitive. But at the same time, there's eventually reality. We all need to mature and grow up and realize You know, meat's meat, and we need to eat it and enjoy it. And I don't care if they sacrifice it to Zeus. There is no Zeus. And, you know, it's just Satan, and it doesn't matter. He's not going to steal that cow. (laughs) It's a good barbecued piece of meat, as far as I'm concerned. Satan doesn't get even one cow. And so, you know, if I open it up for discussion, there would be a pretty lively discussion here tonight, you know. Well, let me tell you, Brian, the way I was raised, you know, and... I was raised by a witch and, you know, Halloween was a real night to them and, you know, it's a real scary thing. And it's, I, I know that. I, I do know that. I do know there are evil people tonight doing really evil things because it's Halloween night. But I also know there's really evil people doing something evil every night of the week <laughs> because they're evil. It has nothing to do with Halloween night. So, you know, 
if that gives them an excuse to embolden them to take a step they didn't take some other night of the week already, which I doubt it, um, you know, that's a sad thing. But as Christians, we're not to sit home and hide and, 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 and again, oh, kids, we're not going to dress up because that's Satan's night. And a oh, bummer, you know, I saw this costume, you know, of a whatever, a, you know, a queen or, you know, rocket man or whatever. I was really looking forward to being that person this year, but no, we are Christians. We don't dress up and, you know, we don't have fun Halloween night. Everybody else has fun, but we stay home and be Christians, you know. I, I just don't see that in the nature of Christ. I just, I don't see that. So, um, interesting enough, and I, I think some of you guys know this, but me and my wife, actually, our first date, we were in choir together, and our first date was Halloween night. And what was funny is our choir director's last name was Pagan. And his two daughters were our age, and so they put together a Halloween party for the choir at his house. So our first date was on Halloween night at a pagan's house. (laughs) And the beginning of love blossomed from paganism. And uh, so it's pretty funny. It's pretty ironic. But uh, I was the Fonz, and she was a giant ice cream cone. That that was it. That sealed the deal. Sealed the deal for me. You guys remember Fonzie? And uh, you guys remember ice cream cones? Yes. So it was, it was a story is much more elaborate than that. But anyway, tonight is our 32nd year. 32nd year. Yeah, so 32 years ago, this very night, magic happened. And uh, the only difference is, is I look more like an ice cream cone now. (laughs) Without a costume. (laughs) That's the problem. That's the problem. Anyway, we're back here in Revelation and uh, fun's over. We're going to get back to Christianity stuff now. Oh, Lord, help us. So, chapter 2, verse 12. So the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we saw in chapter 1, verse 16, that this sword was coming out of his mouth. And he's going to talk about that at the end of this time. And again, just picture that. It's coming right out of his mouth. It's, if you would, it's the fresh rhema word of God. In, in the Greek, you have the logos word. That's the written word. But the rhema word is the word in season. Where God today gives us that word. In Isaiah 50, verse 4 and 5, Jesus prophesying of himself, says that the Lord, his father, if you would, awakens him morning by morning, quickens his ear to have the word that rhema word for the weary in the day. And he wasn't rebellious. He didn't turn his back. He got right up. And in Ephesians 6, verse 17, again, the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. So the, the rhema word is coming from the logos. You can't separate the two. And if you do, then you start having problems. Because somebody says, oh, I've got a word from the Lord, but it's not consistent with the logos. And you go, no, 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 no. The, the logos and the rhema, they're, they're one and the same. They're not different, but yet it's taking the logos and God speaking it afresh and anew and in a way that you wouldn't have considered if you would applying it to your heart and your life had his spirit not spoken it. And again, in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, a powerful, powerful verse. Hebrews four, verse 12, the word of the Lord is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So listen to this. The word of God, it's living. It's not some dead encyclopedia. It's not some dead um, dictionary. It's not some history book that you read it and you got it. George Washington was president and this is what he did and this is the, some of the speeches he spoke and this is where he lived and this is what he did for us and he's the father of a nation, period, end of story, and now the next guy comes president. You know, okay, I already read about that. Even though the Bible has much history in it and it is a historical book, it is the living, powerful, piercing discerning word of God. Again, as we look at Hebrews 4, uh, 12, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharp, it's piercing, it's discerning. The, the word of God comes and, 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 and it's this powerful thing that opens up our hearts and our minds and, and reveals to us uh, that rhema word, that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, revealing things to us we never would have thought about or considered or understood, but God's spirit helps us understand what we don't even understand, the thoughts, the intents of our heart. What did Jesus say about this living, powerful, sharp, piercing thing that happens? Listen to this in Matthew chapter four, verse four. He answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Radical. Jesus said, we can't make it a day without that rhema experience, without that word of God coming straight out of his mouth. And when I, when I think of the, the sword coming right out of the mouth, I think of the, the fresh bread coming right out of the oven. <laughs> you know, it's one thing, you have a piece, you know, a loaf of bread that's been there and you're going, oh, is there any mold on it? Oh, it doesn't look pretty good. Oh, let's hit it against the cabinet. No, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have too much of a hammer sound. So, you know, maybe I can eat it. You know, that's one thing where it's, it's still, you're able to eat it. You know, it's a few days old. But it's a whole nother thing when there's a fresh, am I making you guys hungry? Sorry about that. But that fresh baked bread, you know, it's warm and it's, you can't touch it too hard. And, and there you get some butter on that and just smear it on. And, ah, oh, there's something about that. 
And that's, that's what I sense with this sword coming right out of his mouth. It's, it's what God's speaking right, not even for today, it's right this second, what he is saying to us. And man, how we just need to live there, meditating his word day and night, praying without ceasing, saying, God, I want you to reveal the thoughts and intents of my heart. You know, there in John 3, it, it says that, that the unrighteous don't want their deeds revealed. You know, it's, it's the guy who's doing something in the dark and you flip the light on, he's like, shut that light off. Shut it off, you're making us mad. You kick the light on and, you know, I, I picture a bunch of people doing drugs and the place is just filthy and needles everywhere and urine and, and cockroaches running everywhere and guys in the corner curled up shooting up heroin or whatever. It's just this scary, unclean, demonic thing going on versus people living righteously and turn the light on. Yeah, turn it on. Man, I can't believe we didn't have all the lights on. Yeah, get it brighter in here. Let's see what's going on. We, we want to live with the full brightness of, of God's seeing us and, and our life being visible to all. And this is what he's saying. I'm coming because I want you to be living in the light. I want you to have all that you're supposed to have as, as believers, the love, the power, all that's available through my spirit, I want you to have it. And right now you don't. And he says in, in verse 13 here of Revelation 2, I know your works and where you dwell. So I know, I know. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing we have to be told that. You know how when you have little tiny kids, and you, you tell the real little ones, okay, go hide. And what does a little two-year-old do? They stand in the middle and they just cover up their eyes. <laughs> I'm hiding. I can't, my eyes are closed and I'm putting my hands over my eyes so I can't see anything so nobody can see me. And then the older kids, you know, that are eight years old are just laughing and laughing and laughing. You know, we, we used to play a game when I was a little kid, and I, I don't know why, and I did it with my kids, called Hide the Belt. I think it was about getting spanked and stuff, but it didn't translate necessarily. Um, it was just what we did on rainy days in Central California, and I did it with my kids, not just for fun. And, uh, but it was always funny, because when the youngest kid would go hide it, he would hide it, you know, open, you know, on the coffee table, just sitting there. I hid it. And we'd walk in going, isn't that it? No, no, no. And they'd run and get it and they'd grab it. You can't grab it. You're the one hiding it. They, they don't have the ability for deception. And, and here, you know, sometimes it, it's sort of childish of us to think that God doesn't see all and know all. But yet we do that. We're like, oh, because I'm hiding it from man, God, like man, doesn't know. And it's very immature in our parts. So I'm able to negotiate this thing and hide it from people. People don't know about it. And I'm able to keep this secret sin or secret compromise going because nobody knows about it. And God doesn't know about it either. And he's having to come in and, and in a very unique way say, mm, yeah, you know. I'm everywhere at once. I know everything. 
and I, I know all about your works. All those things that you're hiding from man and, and, and you think that nobody knows about it, you're right, nobody does know about it, but I know about it. And I also know where you dwell. You know, again, you know, I, I picture a guy who's going to prostitutes or whatever and he thinks he's covering his tracks and, and nobody knows he's got the fake mustache on or whatever and, you know, he's got the hat pulled down with the shades and, you know, he thinks n- nobody knows who he is and, 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 and uh, he's doing his deeds on one part of town and, you know, taking a, a snaky path to get back to his house and nobody knows. I got two different lives going on here and uh, I'm pulling this off. It's always amazing how stupid people think they, they are and they, how stupid they think other people are. That's really the funny thing is they, they think that they've really put it over on people and they never do. And, and here um, he's saying, um, well, you may think you got everybody else fooled, but I'm not fooled at all. And then he says something here. I, you're living in a tough place. You're living where Satan's throne is. And then he ends this verse saying where Satan dwells. So this is where his throne is, and this is his permanent residence. Understand, guys, that there is a different realm that we don't understand. It's not like our realm. It doesn't have gravity at 14 pounds pressure per square inch the way we do here. You know, for Satan to go from China to Canada, it's not, oh, it takes him 13 seconds. There is no distance for him. And how that all works out, I don't know. But he does have locations. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So that other dimension doesn't have flesh and blood. They can't get in car wrecks the way we do or break legs or grow old. But we are fighting against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age against the spiritual host of witness in the heavenly places. So principalities is exactly what you say. Oh, this guy is the governor of the principality of California. He, he has this geographical location. And so Satan and certain demons, and we, we get pictures of this. For example, they said Jesus was possessed with the principality of the area of Galilee. And so it's interesting that in that time, they had, by demon-possessed people, sort of figured out, and to some degree, what demons were over what principalities and I don't know if there's any value in that whatsoever and of course people write books on it and try to be clever and I, they're always they always go too far and unbiblical but um, they do have principalities and at this particular time Satan was dwelling over the area of Pergamos that's where his throne was that's where his headquarters was if you would and why that matters or I don't know. We do know as we go on in the book of Revelation, that's going to change to the area of ancient Babylon. And that's where he's going to have his world religion and his world economic system and his principality is going to dwell there. We do see the story in Daniel chapter 10 
where Daniel's asking for prayer to be answered. And it's not coming and not coming. Day after day is going by, week after week. And finally, Gabriel shows up and says, look, Daniel, this has got to be quick. Because the princes of Persia have been fighting against us. And he was referring to a spiritual demonic host. And Michael came and he's relieved me for a minute. I was able to drop down here real quick and give you the answer, but I got to hurry right back because we're in the middle of a battle. Pretty interesting, isn't it? And we find that in, the, in, in Daniel chapter 10. So again, I think there's much about the spiritual realm we don't know, we don't understand, and there's really no need for us to understand. It wouldn't benefit it here to understand what's going on. But, but we do need to understand that there are places that are more dark, if you would, more demonically held in certain ways. And, and maybe you've sensed that. I know I've walked around parts of cities and it's just like, I can just sense just sort of a spirit of drugs or lust or murder or those kind of things. Has anybody ever sensed those kind of principalities? And boy, you just really pray and and, uh, try to get out of there as quick as possible or to know how to minister to people. And he goes on to say there, even though you're right in the middle of where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, you still notice here in verse 13, you still hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 33, Jesus says this, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so to hold fast that confession, even though you're in this demonic place, it was oppressive, the idea to give in and just say, uh, you know, I'm not gonna proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's like, ah, there's the peace. There's less of a pressure when I consider that. No, I'm not going to do that. And in, even, even in the days when things were hot, when there was people being killed, like Antipas. Antipas, interesting enough, means against everything. <laughs> he was against all aspects of the demonic world, of the, the lying world, the lusting world, the drug world. He, he was just standing firm where other Christians were getting scathed. Maybe they weren't giving into lust, but they were giving into the drugs. Maybe they weren't, you know, giving into this, but they were giving into the anger, but giving into the greed. And, and, and everybody was getting beaten and bruised to some degree because Satan dwells there and, and he is just stacking one temptation and one fiery dart after the next on these poor Christians there in Pergamos. But Antipas had a shield up and he'd fought against every single fiery dart and he did not get scathed. They named people again in this culture accordingly. (laughs) And I don't know what his name was, Joe. And it's like, hey, no longer, you're Antipas. You're against everything. You're, You're fighting strong against everything. And so what did Satan do? It's like, man, I can't have examples like this guy around. I gotta kill him. And that's exactly what happened. 
interesting point here, guys. You've got you to make a note of this in your Bibles. The word martyr and the word witness are the same word in the Greek. So, for example, if you go back in Revelation 1.5, one of the titles of Jesus is the faithful witness. And here, Antipas is called the faithful martyr, which is the same word, the faithful witness. Now, the reason it's, changed, it's called martyr here is because he was put to death, and that would be the appropriate. Jesus wasn't martyred. In John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly. Jesus was not martyred, guys. Jesus gave his life. He laid it down. He was fully in control, and he breathed his last, and, and it's a big difference. But here's the key. Jesus names Antipas with one of his names. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you know, we talk about in, in 2 Corinthians 5 there, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So Jesus could say, John, you are the righteousness of Christ. That's one of your titles. It's like, wow, that's true. But here he is naming Antipas, one of his great and awesome titles. Jesus, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, our creator of all, the faithful witness. And Antipas, also the faithful witness. The one who stood against everything, didn't let any of the fiery darts get through, didn't give in any of the temptations, didn't stumble and fall at any point in time. He was like Daniel, Remember Daniel? They kept trying to find one thing in there. Find something bad about Daniel that we can hone in on that and and tell Darius and say, hey, Daniel's not so perfect. Look at this sin in his life. There was nothing they could find on Daniel, was there? They had to come back and say, he prays three times a day. What can we do with that? Well, let's turn it around and make that you can only pray to Darius and then if anybody prays to anybody else, they can be a criminal. That's all they could get on Daniel. Pretty radical, huh? Well, Antipas was one of those Daniel type of guys. There was nothing bad to say about him and Satan had to kill him. So, but Jesus said, I I see what's going on. I know you. I know your works. I know where you dwell. I, I know about you guys who are given in to greed or lust or drugs or I know that you're stumbling and falling along the way and you don't need to. There was a guy amongst you who was going through the same temptation, the same fiery darts. He was in the same location where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. And there was a guy like Daniel, if you would, who stood his ground. And Satan finally had to say, every demon, focus on him. Whatever it takes, let's kill this guy. We can't have a strong Christian like that in the midst of all these other Christians giving them strength and power to live a holy life. Let's take him out. And they did. They had success. They killed him. But God now is saying, I'm giving him one of my titles. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the faithful witness. 
and Antipas. The one who stood against everything successfully is also my faithful witness. Well, looking on in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Ouch. Again, Jesus, our precious shepherd, our husband, our, 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 we're engaged to, to this guy. <laughs> I mean, imagine again, you're engaged to get married in eight months. And the guy comes and says, you know, before we get married, we need to have a talk because I'm against you on some things. Isn't it sort of wondering if the marriage is going to happen now? It's like, oh, we're engaged, but if you're against me on some things, this is a heavy word, guys, and, and it needs to be heavy. It needs to just, the weight needs to come down. We, we need to not try to divert the weight. We need to just let the weight fall. And if it comes close to smashing us, so let it smash us. This is what it's supposed to do. I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Inside here. Now, you might make a note in your Bibles back in Numbers 22 to chapter 25. There's a story there about a prophet of the Moabites. Interesting. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't one of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. He wasn't by blood one of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but yet he had a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a true prophet of God. Now, this is an important point because as we go through the scriptures, we find people that sought God and God let them find him. Boy, it's a wonderful story if you go into detail. Because God had put the children of Israel into ranks. And if you do the numbers, they made the shape of a cross. It's radical. And Balaam's up on top of the mountain looking down in the valley. I was actually at uh, the, the Sea of Aqaba and actually traveled on the Jordanian side as the children of Israel would have done all the way up and came to the city where Balaam lived, and they have a, actually some ancient writing talking about it. And actually the city where this particular missionary lived was that very same city. And we drove up, drove up, drove up, and came up to the top, and he's like, right here. This is probably where Balaam and Balak would have looked down. It's pretty, I don't know, it's just pretty radical when the, you're there where the Bible was 3,000 years ago. But looking down in that valley they would have saw the children of Israel in the shape of a cross. And Balaam says, God, let me curse them. I can get a lot of money from Balak. And God says, no, you can't. They're my people. And Balak says, come on over here and look at a different angle. Maybe that'll work out. And God says, no. And, and finally, um, you guys remember this story. Balaam is, is just counting the money. I'm tired of being a poor prophet. I'm gonna be a rich guy. And you guys remember the story? The donkey, (laughs) 
the donkey slams his leg up against the cliff and he's like, ah, screaming and yelling. And, and finally, make a long story short, the donkey stops, won't go any further. And Balaam gets off, starts beating that thing. He's just lusting with greed to try to get to Balak as quick as he can to curse these people down in the valley who are God's people, but Balaam wasn't in tune. And God opens the mouth of the donkey. You guys remember this story? And, and he says, haven't I been a good donkey to you? And Balaam is so out of his mind, he doesn't, a donkey's talking to me. He's like, yeah, but you're stopping right now. And you know, he's arguing with his donkey. And, and finally, God opens Balaam's eyes and there's an angel of the Lord one step away from just chopping Balaam's head off. And the donkey actually saved his life. And Balaam's like, okay, I got it. I'm done. I'll go back home. It's over. He goes, no, you go ahead and go, but only prophesy what I tell you to prophesy. And he does, and it's blessings on Israel. And actually, it's one of the most powerful prophecies of the Messiah we have in all the Old Testament. But here we discover in the book of Revelation, Balaam still had an evil heart. In the book of Jude, it makes it clear, Balaam's in hell. Even though he prophesied, he'll be like many of those, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Yeah, but be gone, you doers of iniquity, you didn't do my will. But he comes up, we discover here in the book of Revelation that he comes up to Balak and says, look, I can't curse them, but I want the money. And Balak says, give me a plan. Okay, here's the plan. The God of Israel is a holy God. And he will not allow his people to be unholy. So I've noticed, you know, the Moabite women here are beautiful. And so what you need to do is get them to go down to the Israeli guys and say, I'd like to have sex with you. And have them take them back to their tents. But before they have sex, they say, before we have sex, it's my tradition here in the Moabite culture that you bow down and worship our God. And then I'm going to blow your mind with the sex like you've never had before. And those guys are going to be so hot and bothered, they're not going to turn back at that point, even though they got to do idolatry on top of the fornication. And sure enough, that happened. And a plague broke out and 24,000 died. And uh, it was a plan that worked. But we discover here that it was a deep, insidious, wicked plot by Balaam to get his money even though it would mean costing tens of thousands of lives of the children of Israel. What was the real issue here? He says the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. You know, people want to say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. We don't need to, we don't need to dispute over teachings. You know, you believe this about Satan. You believe that about Satan. You believe... You know, the Trinity, you don't believe in the Trinity. You believe the Bible's the word of God. You don't believe the Bible's the word of God. You know, as long as we're all nice and get along, that's what really matters. 
Guys, <laughs> truth is truth. And if you don't have truth, you have error. And if you have error, you have lies and destruction. Satan is the father of all lies. Satan would love you to say, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're nice to each other, Satan would love that. But look here at several passages. In Romans 16, verse 17, it says this. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the what? Doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. If these guys are dividing, causing offenses over doctrine, don't be around them anymore. In Philippians 3, verse 17 and 18, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us as a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So again, these people were erring slowly and changing the doctrine and saying, yeah, we don't, need to, we don't need to get all hot and bothered about those little doctrine things. And now they are saying it doesn't matter whether you receive Jesus and his death and resurrection. You can go to heaven by your good works or uh, by just being a part of the Christian church or whatever. And they're enemies of the cross. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there are some people, again, who are erring, and they're not quite at the point they're an enemy yet. But at the same time, they need to be pointed out and say, you know what? Um... I'm rebuking you right now because you're not holding to the doctrine. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That word accursed in the Greek is anathema, damned to the lowest part of hell. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed, damned to the lowest part of hell. So Paul is saying, if somebody's coming and preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, damn them. To the lowest part of hell, damn them. Even if it were us, if it was an angel, it doesn't matter. Truth is truth. And the truth about Christ, the truth about the cross, the truth about sin, all these things we've told you have not changed. Neither man nor angel can change them. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, he said, This occurred because the false brethren secretly brought in who came in to to spout our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And so again, people who are unwilling to stand on the truth are eventually going to be enemies of the truth. And Second uh, Peter chapter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in what? Destructive heresies. It doesn't at first seem dangerous. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But eventually it's a different gospel. It's a different Jesus. It's a different way of salvation. 
And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For it had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so again, people that are unwilling to endure with sound doctrine, um, they're not going to make it. Well, back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. But you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We've covered this earlier in the church of Ephesus. Which things I hate. This isn't necessarily a, a church or a group of people. This is a philosophy of ministry where people want to lord it over other people. So you've got to listen to me and let me control your life. Well, the reason you're having marriage problems is because you didn't do what I say. And you should have asked my permission before you changed that job or went on that vacation. And God hates that. God does not want people ruling over people. We have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, it says this, But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from what? The simplicity that's in Christ. I love that. It's that simple. Know him and follow him. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, the word another here is another type, whom we have not preached, or if you received a different spirit, which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you've not accepted, here's, here's what he says about the Corinthian church. You may well put up with it. Somebody comes, preaches a different Jesus, a different gospel, uh, and they come with a different spirit, you might just receive it going, oh yeah, come on in. Be a part of us. No problem. And he's grieved saying, no. Somebody comes with a different spirit, you should sense that and rebuke it and stop it. People come and present a different Jesus, it should offend you. Jesus, as the Mormons say, is the brother of Lucifer. That offends me. That Jesus is brought down to the level of a created being of an angel. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses do. They diminish. All the cults want to diminish Jesus. That's what Satan is trying to do. He wants to be lifted up. He wants to be equal to God. So he tries to bring Jesus down. Jesus is a created being. Jesus is an angel. Jesus' brother was Lucifer. Satan was his brother. Jesus had wives on this earth and there's human children from that union and he's trying, they're trying to diminish Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was not created. He is the creator of all. And, and to hate what God hates to the degree he hates it. Well, finishing up here in verse 16, what does he say to the Christians in Pergamos who are going through serious hard times? I mean, just think about it for a minute. These guys are under a lot of pressure. They're going down the street and they're looking at all this satanic stuff going on. Everywhere they turn, it's just a dark spirit of Satanism and snakes and the devil and, and, and all of this. And it's a heavy spirit. That's all I'm saying. It's just a heavy, demonic spirit of lying, of greed, of lust. But even there, what does he say to the Christians? Not to non-Christians, but in verse 16, he says to the Christians, repent or else I'll come to you quickly 
Time's running out. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So guys, time is running out. You better do it quickly or I'm gonna not just tell you I'm against you. The sword's coming out and I'm gonna fight against you and I'm gonna end that church. It reminds me of that verse in 1 Peter chapter four, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Heavy, isn't it? The judgment's gonna come first to the house of God, to believers. And if believers, we see the picture in 1 Corinthians 3 where the fire is set to the house of whatever we built. And it says that which is hay, wood, and stubble gets burned up. That which is precious metal remain. But the foundation, which is Jesus, can't change. We're still saved, but is there any reward left? And he basically says here, when judgment comes to believers, Peter says, they're gonna feel like, man, I'm scarcely saved. (laughs) This is a tough thing to obey God, to submit to God, to live a holy and a pure life before God. And our our commentary as believers, watching Christians be judged and then non-Christians be judged, and before the non-Christians are judged, it's like, wow. If Christians are going through that kind of fiery judgment and there's a few stones left here and there and the foundation of Jesus is left, and we're like going, wow. If that's happening with them, the unbeliever, I can't imagine uh, what kind of judgment they're gonna go through. That's, and it's not there to say, oh, why even try? It's to say, pick up the pace. Look at Antipas. Look at Daniel. Look at Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. There's, there's a lot of guys who are in the midst of a wicked generation, an evil, demonic generation, and they didn't compromise even a little bit anywhere, right? We have examples of these people. Well, finishing up in verse 17, he says here at the end what he said often at the beginning of the letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Pretty cool, huh? And of course, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the manna. Your fathers ate stuff that came out of heaven that my father gave you, but if you want true life, eat of me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And here we're gonna come, and, and, and I don't know what he means, but we're gonna eat up this fellowship with Jesus. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What that means, nobody knows but it definitely speaks of intimacy between you and Jesus and nobody else. And so he's saying, guys, understand you're fighting the fight. It's a hard fight. The the things are against you. The pressures are against you. The fiery darts, the temptations are against you. But understand this. We don't give up anything that we don't get greater. It would be like somebody coming up to you and saying, Give me a penny and I'll give you a billion dollars. And you're like going, man, I don't know if I should give up this penny. 
You know, I understand you're going to give me a billion dollars, but I don't think I can lose this penny. I mean, how foolish. I mean, you're, you're just like, give him the penny. You can't buy anything with it anyway. Give him the penny. It doesn't mean anything. You get a billion dollars, right? Guys, this life is temporary. And whatever lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's all going to be destroyed. It's not going to profit us anything. And whatever we sacrifice, we're going to get it back a million times more. And, and he says, you're going to eat of the manna, eating up Jesus' deep fellowship with Jesus. You're going to have this intimate thing with you and Jesus, uh, you know, almost like lovers. Again, he's the husband. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. And I want to finish with these two verses. In Luke 21, verse 34, it says this. But take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and what else? The third thing. Just the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come in a, as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things which will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And then the last verse, verse 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So there's this point where we are in the last moments of the last days and we are all dwelling where Satan's throne is, aren't we? We are all in a place where Satan dwells. As we're gonna see, the Lord just keeps allowing a greater and a greater influence of the devil on the earth until eventually the Lord cuts the chain and Satan can do whatever he wants. We're raptured out of here. But those who are left behind, um, it's gonna be a snare on the whole earth when Satan and the Antichrist set up their system and anybody who doesn't bow down and take the mark, 666, are gonna be horribly, horribly persecuted. And so here he's given us this opportunity right now uh, to be a part of the rapture but he, it's not to non-Christians he's saying to repent. It's to Christians. And to each of these churches as we look at, we need to say what part of this, maybe all of it, or maybe it's part of it. And maybe this whole thing of the Balaam and Balak and the whole sexual sin thing tonight is just uh, right where you're at. And if you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit's saying. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now and we do ask in Jesus' name as we look at these churches one by one that you would let these churches look into us. That the word of God tonight would be a divider of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. That right now we would say, Lord, search our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us. Are we listening in the last days to the doctrine of Balaam? Which is basically committing idolatry for sexual gratification. Like so many in these days that are saying the most important thing is, is sex. It's what defines me as a homosexual. It's what defines me as a pedophile. It, what defines me from the moment I wake up in the morning until I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about it. And right now, Lord, you would search our hearts and free us up. You've given us all good things to enjoy and the marriage bed undefiled. But at the same time, there's just some just wrapped up, tied up, and maybe there's some other issues here tonight. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, they don't hate. And you're telling us quickly, repent, unless that sword comes out 
and you fight against us. We don't want that. We just yield, oh good shepherd. (laughs) We want a staff in your hand. We want a rod in your hand that protects us, not against us. We want your sword against the enemy, not against us. We submit, we yield. What are you saying to us tonight? We lay our lives at your feet. Cleanse us, forgive us, heal us. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening in the Lord. Say hi to at least three people. Give them a giant bear hug. And, uh, and then, then you can go. And you can try to scare them or something. You see if Ephraim, Ephraim. Say, I'm a ghost from Christmas past or something. I don't know. God bless. God.